This is the Relic Radio Show, old-time radio entertainment still standing the test of time from RelicRadio.com. This is the Relic Radio Show, 60 minutes of radio drama brought to you every Tuesday by RelicRadio.com. Our first story this week is from Screen Director's Playhouse. We'll hear The Killers on June 5th, 1949. After that, it's Four Hours to Kill, the May 13th, 1949 episode from the Philip Morris Playhouse. From Hollywood, the NBC Theater presents... Screen Director's Playhouse, production The Killers, director Robert Siadmak, stars Burt Lancaster, Shelley Winters... Hollywood screen directors present a postscript to murder, The Killers, starring Burt Lancaster and Shelley Winters, and introducing the director of the film, Robert Siodmak. It's not always necessary to have lived a fabulous life in order to create fabulous motion pictures. But in the case of our guest screen director tonight, it most certainly has helped. At 19, he was a seasoned Shakespearean actor. At 20, director of the Dresden Germany Stock Exchange. At 21, rich. At 23, broke again. At 24, he launched the brilliant motion picture career that was to bring him to Hollywood. The director of such thrilling films as Dark Mirror... Spiral Staircase, and tonight's story, The Killers. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert Siotman. Thank you. Thank you. Hollywood has given the world two kinds of motion pictures which are typically American. They are the Western and the gangster films, such as The Killers. It is not to say that America is a country of gangsters any more than a country of cowboys. It means only that America has created a new and fascinating kind of entertainment. Such is our story. That instant is drama. Now here is The Killers, starring Burt Lancaster in his original role of Swede and Shelley Winter as Kitty. Swede! Hey, Swede! Swede, it's me, Nick. It's Nick. What are you doing laying down, Swede? You sick? No. Listen, sweet. I was down in George's diner when two hard guys came in looking for you. They, they said they were looking for you to kill you. I know. Then what are you laying here for? There's nothing I can do. Well, don't you want me to go and see the police? That wouldn't do any good. Couldn't you get out of town? I'm through with running away. But why? Why do they want to kill you? I did something wrong once. Thanks for coming. I just thought, well, okay. They're coming looking for you, sweet. They're coming looking for you. did something wrong once. What? A gas station attendant murdered in an out-of-the-way town called Brentwood, allowing himself to be murdered, helplessly and without complaint, submitting to extermination. Why? Why does a man come to such an abject end? Headquarters put me on the case because I had some college criminology and because I'd known Swede, the victim, back in the old days. 
This isn't the story of how we got Swede's killers. That's routine police work, and you've heard that story a thousand times. What brings a man to such an end as Swede's? That's the important personal story, and this is it. One by one, we rounded up people who'd known the Swede, some of them on the level. One who wasn't on the level was a gunsel named Blinky Franklin, who knew the Swede when. Give, Blinky. Well, let me see, ten years ago. Swede had just knocked Soldier Burns for ghoul, see? That put Swede right up there as a contender for the light heavyweight championship. Well, after the fight, I took Swede over to Jim Colfax's apartment where a big party was going on. Kitty Collins, Jim's girl, was singing over the piano. Right away, I see that the Swede's interested. So I waited for Kitty to finish his song, and then I brought the Swede over to meet her. I loved him so, but there I go. Tonight, tonight I must forget No more memories Swing out, tonight I must forget Music, my Hey, Kitty, Kitty. Oh, hello, Blinky. I don't see you beating your palms. Uh, look, look, Kitty, I want you to meet Sweet Anderson. Sweet's a coming light heavy champ. Oh, how do you do? Hello, Kitty. Uh, you two make yourself acquainted. I want to talk to some of the boys. I'll see. So you're the next champion, Mr. Anderson. Do you like the fights? <laughs> I'm afraid I never saw one. No kidding. I can't bear brutality. The idea of two men beating each other to a pulp. Makes me ill. <laughs> well, I don't get hurt. You're unusual, then. I'll, I'll go into some other racket before I let them knock me punchy. Really? It's uh, too bad Jim is out of town. He'd like to speak to you. Who's Jim? Jim Colfax. Um, he owns this apartment. Oh, well, uh, why would he want to see me? Oh, he has lots of irons in the fire. I'll arrange it for you. Thanks. Th th that's swell, Miss... Uh, Miss... Kitty. Remember? I remember. Well, don't forget. I'll see you at the fight sometime. Two, three, four, five. Sweet, get up! Three, get off that camera! Swede was finished. He'd broken his hand badly in that fight. He'd never fight again. For a while, I didn't see the Swede. Then one night, I was in Lou Tingle's Arena Cafe. I'd been given a tip on some hot jewelry, and sure enough, there was some of it walking in on Kitty Collins' dress. Swede was with her, looking very prosperous indeed. I let him sit down, and I walked over, trying to make it look like a social visit, for a while anyway. Sam! Sam Redden! How are you, boy? Hello, Swede. Kitty, you know Sam Redden. Yeah, I know Sam. You're looking pretty sharp, Swede. That numbers racket really pays off. <laughs> boy, you know everything. <laughs> Say, that broken hand was the best thing ever happened to me. Well, how are you, anyway? What's on your mind, Sam? That diamond brooch Kitty's wearing. What are you talking about? Grand larceny and hot jewelry. You mean to tell me that brooch was... stolen? Let's take a ride downtown, Kitty. Now, wait a minute, Sam. Swede. Is this a pinch? Don't let them take me. You can't do this, Sam. You're not going to stop me, are you, Swede? Look, let you and me go someplace and talk, huh? Look, Swede, if your girl happens to be a shoplifter, I'm sorry about it, It's but... not true, Swede. I didn't take it. I had no idea it was stolen. Make him listen, Swede. I'll give it back. I'll leave town. But don't let him take me, Swede, please. They'll throw the book at me. Look, Sam. You don't want Kitty. I swipe that stuff. I'm the one you're at. Get me? Okay. I get you. That's the way you want it? Yes, sir. That's the way I want it. I pleaded with him to tell the truth, but he stuck to his story and it got him three years. When he got out, Blinky Franklin met him and took him up to a room in a midtown hotel where Big Jim Colfax and some of the boys were working on the biggest payroll job of Jim's career. 
Kitty Collins, the girl for whom Sweet had served three years, sat on a trunk, knitting. I, uh, I guess you know everybody here, don't you, Sweet? Welcome back, Sweet. Hello, Jim. There's Dum-Dum over there, grousing around. Ah, yeah. Of course you know, uh, Kitty. Hello, Sweet. You haven't been much in prison, Kitty. I'm not much for writing. You know that. I know it now. Uh, let's get started, huh, boss? What's a new pitch? Pull up a chair, Sweet. Now, this is big. It's the Prentice Hat Factory payroll over in Hackensack. We walk in as workers tomorrow morning and lift the roll. I'll give you the details in a minute. After the stick-up, we split up and meet again on the halfway house tomorrow night on Route 1. Halfway house, Route 1. Uh, how much is in it for us? Yeah, it ought to be good for $250,000. Ah, not bad. Split how? Well, I'll take the first hundred grand. You can divide the rest three ways. Who declared you in for the big slice? I declared myself. What about Kitty? Kitty's with me. What do you mean, Kitty's with you? Don't start anything now, sweet. What do you mean, she's with you? I spent three years in stir for a robbery she done. What are you trying to give me? She's with you. You want a blueprint, sweet? All right, I'll give you a blueprint. Shut up, Jim. You keep your mouth shut if you don't want it slap shut. You put a hand on Kitty, Jim. You just try it. Well, keep out of it, sweet. Kitty's Jim's girl now. Get out of my way, Blakey. Sweet, mind your own business. This is my business. <clears throat> you crazy, sweet. What did you hit him for? I'll kill you for that, sweet. Reach for your gun and I'll kick your brains out. Cut it out, both of you. Cut it out. Why, you dumb palooka. Give me a hand, Blakey. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I ought to give you the works, sweet. Anytime you say, Colfax. I got a job to do tomorrow. Tomorrow morning at eight. Here's the full pitch now. cars, all cars watch roads leading from Prentice Hat Factory in Hackensack. Armed holdup by at least three men leaving holdup scene in three separate cars. All cars proceed to Prentice Hat Factory at once. All cars, calling all cars, calling all cars. listening to the Hollywood Screen Directors presentation of The Killer starring Burt Lancaster and Shelley Winters and introducing the director of the film Robert Siodmak. This is the concluding program in the present series. Beginning July 1st, the Screen Director's Playhouse will be heard on Fridays at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Saving Time under the sponsorship of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. The opening program in the new series will star Cary Grant in Mr. Blanding's Bill's His Dream House. Remember the time, July 1st, and each Friday thereafter at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Saving Time. We invite you to be with us then. And now, back to the second act of tonight's production of The Killers. <laughs> Who is it? Kitty, quick. Let me in, sweet. What's the matter? Close the door. Sweet, I'm gambling my life coming to you like this. What's the matter? What's wrong? Colfax is going to double-cross you. Going to double-cross me? They aren't going to halfway house after the robbery. You'll go there, but they'll be someplace else. And so will the money. Why are you telling me this? You're Jim's girl. Sweet, I can't let them double-cross you after you took that three-year rap for me. Is that the truth? So help me, sweet. It's the truth. They're going to meet at that old farmhouse on the North Turnpike. They are, huh? They are. Thanks for putting me wise, Kitty. What are you going to do? I'm going to do them like they mean to do me. Don't give me away, darling. Don't you worry, baby. You know why Jim hates you like he does? Because of me, sweet. He, he knows how it really is between you and me. Oh, Kitty. Kitty, why did you ever go back to him? I don't know. Maybe because I hate him. I'm poison, sweet. Poison anyone I really love. I don't care if I hurt Colfax. Oh, Kitty. Kitty, you're not going back to him again. You're leaving with me tonight. 
after I handled Colfax at the farmhouse. I love you, sweet. Oh, you. I'll come back tonight. We'll go to Atlantic City. Call me, darling. Just the two of us. You and me. Yes, darling, yes. Hold me tight. Tighter, darling. Tighter. Boys, I'm tired of waiting for Swede to show up. I'll just take my money now. Shove me the suitcase, dum-dum. Let's start counting. Okay by me, boys. Uh, start counting, Jim, so I can start counting. Okay, boys, hold it. Uh, Swede, what's the idea? Get your hands up. All three of you. You're reaching for trouble, Swede. Well, idea you guys had, huh? Leave me to cool my heels at the halfway house while you split the dough here. You were told of the change, that's why you're here. Shut up. I'll take that suitcase. Thanks, boys. Don't move. Next time, play it straight. Come on, Ash. All right, stop it. I'll mow you down as soon as you come out of the door. Dirty double-crossing rat. You'll get paid off, dum-dum. But good. Swede and Kitty escaped to Atlantic City with the $250,000. They stayed there for several days. Then, well, a woman named Queenie, a chambermaid at the hotel where they stayed, supplied us with the rest of that episode. Queenie? I, I was on night duty, turning down the beds. When I got to his room, 12-12, I heard something smash inside. I went in, and that poor young man was a sight to behold. I'll never forget it. There he stood, a wild look in his eyes, half crazy, holding a splinter chair in his hand. Just as I came in, he threw it at the dresser mirror. Then he just stood there, like a big hurt kid. It was awful. She's gone. Oh, sir, you mustn't carry on like that, sir. She's gone. Where did she go? You mean the lady came here with you? She's gone. She went out this morning with a suitcase. A suitcase? The laundry, she said. She's gone. I'm going to. I'm going to. Oh, please, sir. Oh, not the window. Not the window, please. Take your hands off. Oh, please, sir, please don't. Let go. Please don't jump. Let go of me. Let me go. Oh, please don't do it, mister. If you do that, you'll never see the face of God. I want to die. You'll burn in hell till the end of time. I want to die. I want to die. Oh, no. Not that way. Come here. That's better. There, now lie down. There. Kitty. Give me Dr. Wiley's room right away, please. Swede never saw Kitty again. For six years, Swede Anderson dropped out of sight. Then one day, a heavy, sleek convertible rolled up on the gravel of a gasoline station in Brentwood, New Jersey. Sir, fill her up? Yeah, I guess so, bud. Uh, do you usually take Ethel? Ethel? Yeah. Yeah, Swede. Ethel. Uh, I must look Swedish. Everyone calls me Swede. This town got a name? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What is it? Brentwood. Brentwood. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Brentwood, huh? Yes, sir. Sweet. The next night, the killers came to Brentwood, and Swede lay on his bed, numbly awaiting his fate. I did something wrong once. In someone's opinion, a blast of gunfire corrected that wrong. Swede had double-crossed Colfax, taken a quarter of a million dollars from him. 
and then Kitty had taken it from Swede. It took some doing for us to get the details, but we got them. But not the final details. We needed Kitty for that. We got Kitty. I found her singing in a plushy nightclub, and I made a date to meet her there after the last floor show. At a corner table, I told Kitty some of what we already knew about Swede and the Prentice hat holdup. Then I popped the $250,000 question. What makes you think I've got that money, Sam? We got Blinky Franklin. Blinky talked. There's a chambermaid in Atlantic City who remembers your face from pictures we showed her. And I've just had a talk with Jim Colfax. You've seen Jim? He's mighty provoked about your skipping out with all that money. You told him I took it? He's mighty provoked. Look, Sam, suppose... Suppose I raise 70000 of the missing money. Huh? Uh-uh. Sam, I've turned over a new leaf. I've got a home now and a husband. I'm leading a life that, that's worth fighting for. Sam, what can I do to save something out of that life? Tell me. Turn state's evidence. What do you want to know? Who planned the robbery? Jim Colfax. Say that in court? Yes. After you took the money and left Swede flat in Atlantic City, how did you get rid of Jim Colfax? I... I staged a fight with him two days later and walked out on him, too. And you were in the clear because nobody knew you'd been with the Swede and taken his money away from him. Lovely girl. Sam, can't we go somewhere else and finish this talk? Where? Well, how about your apartment? Sold. I'll go powder my nose and get out of this costume. Don't go away, will you? I glanced over toward the entrance, and there they were. Death and his twin brother, and they were coming my way. I'd never seen them before, but I knew who they were. The killers. Their faces were empty of everything except that blank cruelty of the professional murderer. When I saw the long, vicious revolvers come up at me out of their coats, I didn't hesitate. I slid under the table fast and started shooting. Death and his twin brother were down. And I jumped up and made a beeline for Kitty's dressing room. It was empty. The door to the outside alley was open, and Kitty, of course, was gone. But I bet I knew where. The house was an elaborate one on the edge of town. The front door pushed open easily. Someone had gone in too fast and left it unlatched. I went in and closed the door. Whoever had come in had also alerted him. Jim Colfax was waiting for me at the top of the stairs. Redden? Present. My boys didn't get you. On the contrary, Jim. Well, allow me. Colfax? Better get me a doctor, Sam. Jim, what is it? Jim. Better still. The priest. Jim. Jim, darling, I'm sorry. I love you, Jim. I, I know, Kitty. It wasn't your fault. Sam? Yeah, Jim? Tell me, uh, how'd you figure it? Look, anyone can go to the Hall of Records and find out you and Kitty were married. You knew I was lying when I said I'd thrown Jim over. We know a lot of things, Kitty. I don't know why Jim sent those killers to blast the Swede. I... Had to. Swede was the only the only one who knew that Kitty had ever had the money. Poor Swede. He never knew that Kitty brought the money straight back to you. You two framed the whole thing so you wouldn't have to split the take with anyone. You just used the Swede to pull your chestnuts out of the fire. But I didn't have anything to do with Swede's killing. No. Jim, tell him. Tell him I didn't have know about those gunmen. Jim. You're dying, so why not say it? Say Kitty is innocent. It's no use, Kitty. Say it. Say it, Jim. Say Kitty is innocent. Say it. It's no use, Kitty. Say it! Say it! Say it! He's dead. That's it. I didn't tell you a detective story full of clues and pursuit. I wanted to tell you a Swede story. 
There are a lot of people in the world like Swede. More sinned against, perhaps, than sinning. Sure, Swede was to blame for a lot of things. But who is to blame for Swede? He's gone now. Despair dying on his lips. There's nothing I can do about it. Through with running away. I did something wrong once. Thanks for coming. What about Swede? I read something the other day. I can't forget it. It went, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. I did something wrong once. What loosed the killers on Swede? Something he did? Or something we didn't do? All of us. I did something wrong once. I wonder. What did we do wrong? return in just a moment. But first, a message of interest to all our listeners. This is the concluding program in our present series. Beginning July 1st, the Screen Director's Playhouse will be presented for your enjoyment on Fridays at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Saving Time under the sponsorship of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. The first production will star Cary Grant in Mr. Blanding's Bill's His Dream House. So for great motion picture entertainment brought to the microphone, remember the date, July 1st. Remember the day, Friday. Remember the time, 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Saving Time. Now, here again are our stars, Burt Lancaster and Shelley Winters, and screen director Robert Siaki. Robert, 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 at the beginning of the program, you said that The Killers is a typical American film. Oh, yes, it is. Then tell me something, uh... Why, uh, why were you, with your European background, chosen to direct the picture? Well, it's very simple, because I hadn't spent my life in America. Everything was new to me. I saw things that you don't see. Well, like what? Well, let me give you an example. When I first traveled across the United States, I came to a small town with a big sign. The sign said Coca-Cola. So I said to myself, aha, I'm now in Coca-Cola, New Mexico. <laughs> and then I came through Burma Shave, Arizona. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, that's the way you became a director? Uh, certainly, my dear Shelley. It's merely a matter of applied ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it isn't, Robert. It's a matter of talent and skill and cultural experience. And I guess being born in Europe is kind of an asset. Oh, please, I wasn't born in Europe. My first years I spent in the United States. No kidding! <laughs> well, what's your hometown? Why, can't you tell by my accent? Well... <laughs> <laughs> Robert, forgive me, but no. Somehow I just can't place it. Well, I tell you. Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> you were born in Memphis? Well, certainly. Listen, I'll prove it to you. Good night, you all. <laughs> good night, Colonel. Good night. And good night to you, Bert Lancaster, Shelley Winters, and Robert Siodman. Mark Hellinger's The Killers was presented to the courtesy of Universal International Studios who will soon release Calamity Jane and Sam Bass, a Technicolor production starring Yvonne DiCarlo and Howard Duff. Burt Lancaster will soon be seen starring in his own Norma production of The Hawk and the Arrow, soon to be released by Warner Brothers. Robert Siodmak's forthcoming release is the Hal Wallace production for Paramount, Thelma Jordan. Shelley Winters will soon be seen in Take One, False Step, a Universal International picture co-starring William Powell. Robert Siodmak appeared to the courtesy of Universal International Studios, who will soon world premiere the picture Illegal Entry, starring Howard Duff, Martha Torrin, and George Brent. Included in tonight's cast were Sam Edwards, Tony Barrett, Frank Gerstel, Bill Conrad, Gwen Delano, Clark Gordon, and Dan Riss. The Killers was adapted for radio by Milton Geiger, and original music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. Production was under the supervision of Howard Wiley, associate producer Bill Karn. Your announcer has been Frank Barton. Listen again when Screen Director's Playhouse returns to the air on Friday, July 1st at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Saving Time. Remember, 
Screen Director's Playhouse. Production, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House. Director, H.C. Potter. Star, Cary Grant. Date, Friday, July 1st. The NBC Theater came to you from Hollywood. 30 Minutes of Melody is followed now on American Album of Familiar Music. And listen for Take It or Leave It with Gary Moore and Horace Heights' original Youth Opportunity Program. All three follow immediately on most of these NBC stations. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Johnny presents Philip Morris Playhouse, produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Tonight's star, Howard Duff. It's a wonderful, wonderful feeling to wake up fresh with no cigarette hangover. Yes, you'll be glad tomorrow. You smoke Philip Morris today. And now with Howard Duff as star, we bring you Four Hours to Kill. Tonight's production transcribed in the Philip Morris Playhouse. So you want to know what's the matter? What's wrong with me? Okay, sit down on that bench over there. Make yourself comfortable. Because this takes a while to tell and I want to get all of it off my chest. You know... Now that it's over, I can look back and see everything in perspective. Clear back to the days when my brother Walter and I were kids in Vermont. And I can see now that my life's divided into two halves. The first 28 years and the last four hours. Yeah. Four hours ago, I was standing at the big front door of the Bachelors Club on my way to see Walter for the first time in five years. I knew it was going to be tough, but things had changed since the last time we were together. Walter had arrived now. He was the kind of New York lawyer who divides his time between the front page and the society section, and I was still a newspaper bum. The competition between us was over, and I was hoping that now, with the numbers up on the scoreboard for everybody to see, Walter might let down a little, decide he could afford to call off whatever it was that had set us at each other's throats from the beginning. Anyway, that's what I hoped. As I said, I knew it would be tough. Asking Walter for anything was always tough. Well, I finally swallowed what pride I had left and walked into the lobby. At the desk next to the stairway, the clerk was in a huddle with a bellboy. Well, Pete, what does the guy expect? 7.25, he calls for his dinner, and if you don't believe me, you can ask the steward, because he wrote the time down... It's one of those clubs where you're supposed to put a call to the desk before going upstairs. I stood around waiting for a minute and figured it might be better if Walter didn't know I was coming, so I walked past them and up the stairway. They didn't even see me. So I said to myself, okay, so the guy's got a load of martinis aboard. Let me call him. What does he think we are, magicians? I'll have to wait. His phone's tied up. Mm. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Larry. Starting tomorrow, someone else is going to take care of Walter Pomeroy. So it was Walter and with a load of martinis. I should have stopped right then, turned around and walked out. It was my exit cue, but I muffed it. Well, nothing can change that now. Anyway, I walked on up to the second floor and down the hall at 206. Well, it's about time you got here. Bring it. Hello, Walter. Oh, Theodore. That's right. Well, Brother Theodore, come on in. You're just in time for dinner. The boy will be up in a minute and... Oh, no thanks, Walter. I haven't got too much time. Huh? You mean you're turning down a free meal? Oh, look, uh, let's forget that stuff, shall we? We're grown up now. There's no sure, point. Sure, sure. Uh, sit down. Uh, no, I, I won't be too long. Oh? Tell me, uh, Ted, how are things on the paper in Buffalo? 
Okay, I guess. I quit yesterday. Oh, you quit? Yeah. Not fired. You were quit. That's what I said. So now you're out of a job and you figure that I... Wait a minute, Walter. Wait a minute. Let me tell you all of it. There's a guy I met in the service, Dan Allender. He's down in Florida now, Fort Lauderdale. Look here. Here's the letter I got from him. He's, he's buying a paper there, a little country sheet, eight pages twice a week. Mm-hmm. He wants me to go in with him. It's nothing big, Walter, but it's the kind of thing I've been looking for for years. We can, we can really do something down there. The place is growing. We can double the circulation in six months. Dan's got all kinds of ideas, and so have I. He says... What's the matter? Mm-hmm. What's so funny? You... I don't get it. How much, Ted? Well, the price was ten thousand. I'll need half of it. Five thousand bucks. That's right. <laughs> Same song, eighty-second verse. I'm not begging, Walter. What is it then? I'm asking you for a loan. I'll sign a note. <laughs> well, what about it? What happened to your pride, Ted? I thought we agreed to forget. I didn't agree to anything. You've not only lost what pride you had, you haven't even got good sense. Okay, Walter. That answers my question. <laughs> It's good for a laugh, though. <laughs> Little brother Theodore crawling on his belly. <laughs> shut up, Walter. Five thousand bucks. You thought that I, I said give shut you... up. Let go of me. Let go of me, Ted. I've had all of you. I'm going to take you. Hear that, Walter? I've had all of that. Go of me, you. Okay, Walter. Okay. You had that coming for a long time, Walter. Yeah, you're right. I was stupid thinking you'd... Get up. Come on, Walter, get up. I won't bother you anymore. I won't. Walter. Walter! I saw it when I turned him over. A stream of blood oozing out of his right temple where he'd hit his head in the corner of the heart. No pulse. No breath. Walter was dead. In a spot like that, you don't think. You move. No one knew I was in New York, and I was sure the clerk and the bellboy hadn't seen me cross the lobby. If I could get out without being spotted, I had a chance. I picked up the letter from Allenby, went to the door, put my handkerchief over the knob, turned back to give the room a last look before I left. That's when I saw it. The telephone receiver was off the hook. remember I looked down at it like it was a poisonous snake or something. Started to hang it up and changed my mind. Hello? Walter? Yeah. Yeah, this is Walter. Really? Uh, uh, sorry I kept you waiting so long, but... Wait a minute. Let's have an understanding right now. When I want a good newspaper man, I'll call you. When I want impersonations, I'll go see the floor show at Leon and Eddie's. Why don't you call your brother and tell him I'm getting tired of holding this telephone? Oh, uh, who I say is calling? He knows. I made that pretty clear just before you barged into his apartment. Well, what makes you think I barged in? Just a guess. Am I warm? Not very. From this end, the dialogue sounded more like a Donnybrook than a pink tea. Look, let's not go into Oh, the... don't apologize, Theodore. Walter's a class A heel and he had it coming. I'll pick him up off the floor wherever you left him, bring him to the phone. Wait. He's out of the apartment right now. Why don't you just give me your name and number and I'll... He already has it. I gave it to him a year ago in a moment of weakness. Tell him I'll call him back in an hour or so. Hold it a minute. You're dinner, Mr. Pomeroy. Listen, Walter won't be back until late tonight. You better call him at his office in the morning. You got that? Yes, but... Mr. Pomeroy. If I had any sense, I'd have given up right then with a bellboy pounding on the door with that girl on the phone who could send me to the chair with a word. As I said, in a spot like that, you don't think. Something else takes over. You in there, Mr. Pomeroy? I had to get my hands on that girl. I knew he'd have her number written down somewhere. There was nothing on the telephone stand, nothing in the drawers but a couple of bridge score pads and some other junk. I wiped the knobs with a handkerchief and turned back to Walter. I began searching his pockets. The bellboy was rattling some keys outside when I found it. A little brown leather-covered book with some names and numbers in it. Jumped toward the door, slid behind it just as it opened. Mr. Pomeroy, I knocked and I. Holy cow! Larry! The minute he turned the corner, I took off of the back stairway. The pack was beginning to howl up front when I left with the rear door, still unseen, safe, except for that girl. 
I knew I'd have to find her somehow, somewhere. And then I'd have to kill her. heard Act One of Four Hours to Kill, starring Howard Duff. In this brief intermission for a smoke in the Philip Morris Playhouse, may we have your attention, please, ladies and gentlemen. When your cigarette leaves a stale, musty, smoked-out taste in your mouth, that's cigarette hangover. When your cigarette leaves your throat tight, dry, uncomfortable, that's cigarette hangover. Yes, that's what takes the joy out of smoking. And when that happens to you, it's time to change to Philip Morris. Remember... Philip Morris is the one, the only cigarette proved definitely less irritating, definitely milder than any other leading brand. That fact is recognized by eminent medical authorities. No other cigarette can make that statement. Remember, top-ranking doctors, eminent nose and throat specialists actually suggest Philip Morris in cases of irritation due to smoking. That's why we say, if you're tired of cigarette hangover... Join the millions and change to Philip Morris. You, too, will discover in Philip Morris a milder smoke, a fresher, cleaner smoke than you've ever known before. Yes, you'll be glad tomorrow you smoked Philip Morris today. Philip Morris, America's finest cigarette. Now, Howard Duff in Act Two of Four Hours to Kill. Tonight's production in the Philip Morris Playhouse. I started across town toward Fifth Avenue, walking slowly, letting the cold night air work on my face. By now, the call was in the headquarters and a prowl car was on the way. In a half hour, the homicide men would be there with the police photographers. By nine, the story would be into the morning papers. They'd be out around midnight, and Walter was front-page stuff. And that girl, who'd heard it all on the phone, she'd be able to read the headlines from across the street. And once she added it up, I was through. I had four hours to find her. Then somehow, somewhere, I knew I'd have to kill her. found a phone booth in a Fifth Avenue drugstore and took out the memo book. He'd scribbled first names and phone numbers in four or five pages. The rest of it was blank. No addresses, nothing else to go on. About a dozen of them belonged to women. So I started on number one. Anna Lee at a Murray Hill number. Hello. Uh, is this Murray Hill 40098? That's right. Is uh, uh, Joanne there, please? Joanne? Sorry, I don't know any Joanne. You must have the wrong number. Are you sure you want... I, uh, I guess I'd better check it again. Sorry. No, Louise isn't in. And if you're that guy who's been calling her, let me tell you right now. You say you are making a survey? Well, my little head isn't much good at figures, but I'll surely be glad to help you all that I can. Hello. Who's this? Maxine. Who's this? Didn't I talk to you a while ago? Who is... Oh, don't tell me it's Theodore. <laughs> Make it Ted, will you? I hope so. I see. And you make a habit of hanging up in people's faces? Well, we were cut off, and you were so secret about giving me a name, I couldn't call you back. Mm. So you went out and bought yourself a crystal ball? No, I I just called up every girl in Walter's telephone index until you answered. Why did you do that? Because I I want to see if the the girl is as nice as the voice. (laughs) How do you blush over the phone? Why don't you save us both a lot of trouble by telling me where I can meet you? I'd rather keep it this way. I can be pretty persistent. I can be pretty stubborn. One Pomeroy is about all I can cope with at one time. I'm awfully sorry, Theodore, but... Uh, Wait a minute. Uh, Can you talk a little louder? I can't quite... Uh, What's that music? The radio? No, it's not the radio. And please don't bother me. You're a nice boy, but I'm too busy right now to play any games. Look, you've got to at least give me your last name, Maxine. Not tonight, Theodore. Some other time. But wait. Sorry, pal. You forced me to do this. Maxine, wait a minute. Wait. 
Would you tell me if you have a party by the name of uh, uh, Thomas P. Sherman at Plaza 22376? Thomas P. Sherman, S-H-E-R-M-A-N? Uh, right. Uh, Plaza 22376. One moment, please. I looked at my watch, 9 o'clock. I could close my eyes now and see Walter's room, jammed with the boys from the police beat, crowding around the medical examiner, grabbing for the phone, shooting questions at the lieutenant in charge. Hello, sir. Yes? We have no record of a Thomas P. Sherman at Plaza 22376. Oh, uh, who is listed at that number? I'm sorry, sir, we do not give that information. What about the address of the number? I'm sorry, sir, but we are Look, not... Look, I've got to have it, operator. It's very urgent. One moment, I'll connect you with the supervisor. No, 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 skip it. I started to get panicky and got a lot of wild ideas about running, grabbing the next plane for anywhere. But I fought it down. I'd been a reporter long enough to know what happens to guys who run. I had to get that girl. I had to. Yeah. Uh, through with the phone, pal. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, thanks, pal. <laughs> I gotta get a hold of the little woman. You know, more I explain to her now, the less I'll have to do when I do get home. Boy, they're sure going all out on that Legion parade, ain't they? Yeah, yeah. Parade? Excuse me. Uh, sure, what's the matter? What was that you said about a parade? Legion Parade, coming up Fifth Avenue. Crosstown traffic's tied up for two hours. Coming by here? Yeah, band's down the street now. Band, that's what I heard. Huh? Uh, nothing. Th- thanks, thanks a lot. Crowds were lining the curbs outside. Down the avenue, somewhere around 78th Street, I could hear the band at the head of the parade marching towards us. The same band I'd heard over her telephone passing so close it almost covered her voice. She was on a low floor next to the street, and the band had passed her at exactly one minute to nine. I remembered looking at my watch. I stood there and waited for the band. It was a wild idea, but I had a feeling if I figured it carefully, I could come pretty close. I walked a block to the band. Then another one to make sure. It took them a minute and 20 seconds to cover a block. We hit 84th Street at 16 minutes and 20 seconds past 9. They'd covered exactly 13 blocks since they'd passed her telephone. That made it somewhere around 71st Street on a ground floor, an apartment, maybe a residential hotel facing Central Park. I turned and started running back down Fifth Avenue. I was getting close. And there were still two hours before the morning papers hit the street. hour and a half, I checked Fifth Avenue for two blocks on either side of 71st, going over nameplates and apartment doorways. There were two Maxines. I talked to one on the house phone. She must have been 70 and met the other one face-to-face, a hatchet-faced character who didn't appreciate being got out of bed by a drunk who had the wrong apartment. That left only one possibility, a residential hotel in the middle of the block. I decided I'd try calling her again. Walked past the cigar stand in the lobby to a row of phone booths at the rear. It was 10 minutes to 11. Time was running out. Hello, Maxine. Oh, here we go again. What is it this time, Theodore? I'm still trying to wear you down. Because you like my voice. Right. You think I'm charming? Practically irresistible? Right. And another thing. What? I think you live in the Grayson Arms on Fifth Avenue. Wrong. I live on the other side of town. Wait, now, be honest with me. Hold it, will you, just a minute. She was lying. She knew what it was all about and was playing with me. The panic came back. I looked across the marble floor of the lobby toward the cigar stand. A customer was standing there. A girl had appeared behind the counter to wait on him. Then he left and another guy came in. My heart stood. It was the distributor with a bundle of morning papers. My mind was paralyzed. It didn't sink in. Not even when I saw the girl turn away, pick up a phone. You were stringing me along about living on the other side of town. Listen, Maxine, you've got to... You... Yes? Hello? Ted, are you there? Yeah. Uh, sorry, I... Wait. Uh, Maxine, have you got the time? Just a second. I saw the girl put down the phone, hold her watch toward the light. It's 5 to 11. When are you through work? Right now. Wait. How did you know I was working? Stay put for a minute, and I'll tell you. Hello? 
Hello. Uh, oh, uh, hold it a minute, Ted, will you? Yes, sir. Package of those, huh? Yes. Eighteen and twenty-five. Thank you. Anything else? That's up to you. Now, look, friend. Wait, I... I told you I was the persistent type. What are you talking... You... You're Ted. Disappointed? <laughs> Not exactly. How you... I was calling from the booth over there. Oh. You mind if I hang up on you again? How did you find the Grayson Arms? My crystal ball. You ought to get yourself a booth at the county fair. You'd make a fortune. Yeah, it's only a sideline. Do you really live across town? The worst-looking brownstone on 75th, but it's home. Good. Then I can walk you home. Walter won't like this. He won't mind. Okay, Theodore. I'm whipped. Let me lock up and get my things. I'll be with you in a minute. I waited while she shut things down, threw a tweed coat over her shoulders, put a blue felt hat with a feather in it in the back of her head. The face matched the voice. Dark hair, wide-set blue eyes with laugh wrinkles at the corners. But I wasn't thinking about that then. I was thinking what a break it was she lived across town on the other side of Central Park. Ted. Huh? Mind if I mention something? No. No, go ahead. We're going the wrong way. The main path across the park down there. I know. This is a shortcut, a little darker, but, but shorter. You don't mind? No, I don't mind. At the last minute, she grabbed the paper off the pile, folded it, and stuck it in her pocket without looking at it. We turned into a dark byway. She moved closer and took my arm. The paper pressed against me like a hot branding iron in my side. My heart was pounding now. There was a choking lump in my throat. I hardly dared to talk. I'm sorry I gave you such a bad time tonight, Ted. Forget it. I guess I thought you'd be different. More like your brother. Why are we stopping? Why did you do it? What do you mean? You can let your hair down. Walter can't hear us. Why did I do what? You mean you do this every night? What? Call up strange women and tell them you've fallen in love with their voices? Oh. Let's not talk about that now. I don't get it, Ted. Look. I'll tell you later, I... Well, never mind. I just thought it was worth mentioning, that's all. I guess I was wrong. Good night, Ted. I can make it the rest of the way alone. No. No, wait. I mean it. Let go of me. Quiet. It's a cop. You'll hear us. Well, I don't care. I just... Hey! Anyone up there? Hey! I held her tight. My lips hard against hers. I heard the cop walk by on the main path 50 feet away. There, in that dark byway, I could have done it. Ten seconds, maybe 20, and it would be over. I'd be free. But I discovered something else. It wasn't just that I loved her. I knew that now as I felt her respond, felt her arms tighten around me. No, it wasn't just that. I said it before that Back in that room with Walter's body at my feet, I stopped thinking. Something else took over. I was like an animal, fighting for life, going on nerve and instinct. But there, on that black pathway in the park, I began to think again like a human being. And I knew that whatever it is that's born into a murderer wasn't in me. That love her or hate her, I could no more murder this girl in cold blood than fly to the moon. Avenue entrance. Yeah. Why don't you tell me, Ted? Something's tearing you to pieces. I can see it. Okay. You got a morning paper in your coat pocket. Take a look at it. Paper? What's that got to do with... Here, give it to me. Yeah, page one. I knew it. Lawyer attacked in city apartment. Walter? Yeah, you asked me. Here it is. New York, January 18th. Bruised and bleeding after an attack by a mysterious visitor into his rooms at the Bachelors Club early last night, Walter Pomeroy. Wait a minute. Go on. Walter Pomeroy, noted criminal lawyer, still refused to disclose the identity of his assailant. 
Dr. James Penrose, attending physician, said Pomeroy suffered a possible concussion from a severe blow on the head, but was otherwise progressing nicely and would be released from City Hospital in 24 hours. The attack came... Good Lord. Severe blow on the head. He fell. Listen. Listen, Maxine. This doesn't tell at all. There's something else. Then what is it? What is the matter? Okay. So you want to know what's the matter? What's wrong with me? Okay. Sit down on that bench over there. Make yourself comfortable because this takes a while to tell and I want to... And that's it. That's what's wrong. I wanted you to know all of it because you're important to me now. More important than anything else in the world. You can check out if you want to. There's nothing a cup of coffee won't cure. Max. Darling. There's an all-night stand around the corner. Got 20 cents? Tonight, the Philip Morris Playhouse presented Four Hours to Kill, produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Our star, Howard Duff, will be back in a moment for a curtain call. In the meantime, it's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful, wonderful feeling to wake up fresh with no cigarette hangover. Yes, that's something more and more smokers who have changed to Philip Morris are discovering every day. Millions of new smokers now enjoy in Philip Morris a milder smoke, a fresher, cleaner smoke than they've ever known before. And for a good reason. For in Philip Morris, they enjoy the one cigarette proved definitely less irritating, definitely milder than any other leading brand. Yes, it's actually suggested by top-ranking doctors, eminent nose and throat specialists in cases of irritation due to smoking. Doesn't it make good sense for you, too, to try Philip Morris? Yes, join the millions and see what a difference it makes. What a pleasure it is to smoke America's finest cigarette. Next time you step up to a cigarette counter, call for Philip Morris. And remember, you'll be glad tomorrow you smoke Philip Morris today. Our Philip Morris Playhouse must have seemed like home to you, Mr. Duff. Having you track down a woman, your usual Sam Spade caper. Uh, true, Johnny. And now I spend my days tracking down a Von DiCarlo out at Universal International where we're making Calamity Jane and Sam Bass. Uh, pretty nice profession acting, all in all. Or would you care to say, Johnny? It figures. <laughs> what are you lined up for next week, Johnny? Next week, the Philip Morris Playhouse will present Chester Morris in an exciting script called Copper Turns Green. But before you go, may I present you with this carton of Philip Morris cigarettes. And thank you for being with us. Thank you, Johnny. Good night. Good night, Mr. Duff. Friends, this is John Holbrook reminding you, if you're tired of cigarette hangover, call for the one cigarette that gives you a milder, fresher, cleaner smoke. Yes, from now on. Now, goodbye, Johnny. See you next Friday, same time, same station, when once again we will present transcribed the Philip Morris Playhouse, starring Chester Morris. Until then... Take a number from one to ten. I'll take five. That's the winner. That's Revelation, a blend of five great tobaccos cut five different ways. Revelation is a great pipe tobacco that's smooth, burning, fragrant. Only 15 cents for the pocket tin. Revelation. Tonight's original radio play was by Harold Swanton. Music on the Philip Morris Playhouse is under the direction of Lud Gluskin. All names and characters used on this program are fictitious. Any similarity to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. This is Art Ballinger saying goodnight for Philip Morris. That's the Relic Radio Show for this week. Hope you enjoyed our selections this time. You can find more from the Screen Director's Playhouse, 
the Philip Morris Playhouse, the Relic Radio Show, and everything else Relic Radio at the website, relicradio.com. Thousands of old-time radio episodes to listen to there, and our shoutcast stream with even more, all available for free thanks to your support. If you'd like to help out, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. Your support makes it all happen and has for 15 years. Thanks for that, and thanks for joining me today. Be back next Tuesday with another hour of the Relic Radio Show. Mm-hmm.